Welcome to today's edition of Daytime Dialogues. Today is the beginning of our second season. Believe it or not, this is the 53rd interview that I've had the pleasure to conduct. And this one is a very special one because I have the opportunity to get together with a good friend who uh, is relatively new to Chicago, only five years in Chicago, but who has changed the face of relationships with the Council General, with the Council of Israel in Chicago. The Honorable Aviv Ezra, our Council General in Chicago, is joining me today, and it's a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much, Aviv, for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Rabbi. It's, uh, you, I, I can't begin to tell you how wonderful it has been to be able to learn from you, work with you, work for you, uh, you and your wife have created a wonderful sense of community through the council, through the consulate, and we thank you for everything that you're doing. Thank you. I'm I'm the one who is grateful, and it's been an honor to serve here as Israel's uh, consul general to the Midwest for, as you said, five years, which is a long period of time, half a decade, and uh, we just we just talked about it that uh, time flies when you're having fun. Such such a great honor and an opportunity to work with the superb Jewish community and many other communities around uh, around nine states here. So I'm, I'm, I'm very honored and excited to have this opportunity to speak with you and with your uh, congregation and to be thankful for everything that we have vis-a-vis -vis friendships and mishpuche families and ties here. <laughs> so originally I was going to start with, with a whole different set of questions, but obviously everything has changed over the last few days in Israel. And so we're hearing a lot of things that are happening. What's happening right now in Israel? How's, how is the situation? Well, yeah, uh, when we scheduled this phone call, it was actually, uh, I would say, a couple of weeks back. And we did not, both of us did not anticipate that we will have to be facing uh, the kind of, of, of uh, events that we're facing uh, today in terms of the escalation. I just... Uh, finished a phone call with my parents a couple of hours ago. It was late at night in Israel, and they're in their 80s, uh, still young, but uh, they have been sheltered for 48 hours. Uh, rockets have been uh, landing upon their, uh, uh, upon their uh, uh, houses, and they live in the center part of Israel. And, uh, you know, I can't, I can't emphasize enough how uh, concerned and how uh, mind-boggling it is that uh, Jews and Israelis have to go to shelter uh, under these circumstances, even today uh, with an independent sovereign state of Israel. But, but zooming out for a second, I mean, look, we're talking about a thousand uh, rockets in about 48 hours. We're talking about millions that are in shelters. We're talking about people that have died. We're talking about injured. And I you know, want to put here in front of all your uh, crowd the question that we usually put in, which is the WWAD question, which is what will America do in a situation like that? And I wanna, I wanna, I wanna offer that America would not be willing to take lying down neither thousand rockets raining upon her citizens, 100, 10, or even single one that will come and, uh, and will rain down uh, its citizen and it will exercise its right for self-defense, which is exactly what Israel is doing at this point. And how do you respond to the people who say it's a David and Goliath, that the Palestinians or Hamas, they're, they're not powerful and Israel has the greatest army. We were just talking about it that uh, last night, Trevor Noah, 
on uh, on uh, network on network broadcast uh, criticized Israel for its response. How how do you respond to those kind of claims? Look, in today's world, uh, apart from the fake news, about uh, apart from the misunderstandings, apart from not going in depth, to today's news, it's all about a very short glimpse of 140 characters, if it's the Twitter, or a single footage, if it's, a, if it's in a other medium. And at the end of the day, we have to zoom out. We have to go a little bit in depth and talk about the entire context and ask, and ask ourselves and put ourselves in the following question. This is not about a certain tactical event here or a certain tactical event there. Obviously, Israel is not perfect. It has its shares of uh, mistakes. At the end of the day, the, the, the dilemma here, the dilemma is between uh, a radical, vicious, murderous regime in the shape of Hamas versus are we supporting a liberal democracy fighting for its life and values in a tough neighborhood? And this is the context. And Trevor Noah can zoom in to a certain uh, real estate dispute in Sheikh Jarrah or can, or can zoom in to a certain uh, event that happened with the Israeli police or whatever, but that's that's not not credible and not covering the entire uh, question itself. I think at the end of the day, we have to ask ourselves in this junction of history and and like-minded countries and people like Trevor Noah and the media, where are we standing today? Israel does not represent just Israel versus Hamas. This is radicals versus moderates, and where are we standing this time? And for those of us, I've had many people reach, reach out to me and say, Rabbi, we have to do something. What can we do here in the Galut, in the diaspora? You know, you know that's such a great question. And, and it indicates the people, you, it indicates something very dramatic about your congregates that not only do they care, but they refuse to remain silent and indifferent. The most problematic response is indifference. I think Elie Wiesel has said something said sometimes, uh, said in the past, excuse me, that the opposite of, uh, of love is, is not hate, but rather indifference. And to, to your uh, question, your congregate question, I would say anything that you feel comfortable as long as it's an active uh, act of, uh, <clears throat> of determining where you stand. So if you feel comfortable in writing, write an op-ed. If you feel comfortable in talking to people, Call your representative. If you're, if you're smart and, and strong with techno technology and you're good in social media, respond in social media. I'll give you an example. The other side is much more organized in this sense than us. We, I just spoke with the governor of, uh, of Nebraska a couple of hours ago, and he tweeted a tweet in support of Israel. He says, I stand with Israel's uh, right to self-defense. And you should see the level of attacks from, from not a lot of people, I say 100 or 200 Palestinians and pro-Palestinian activists that went at it. We need the, the, the support of our friends, either the Jewish community or non-Jewish community, not to be silent and stay strong with the elected officials that support Israel or in any other way, shape or form. In other words, we wanna do things. So what you're saying we should do is whatever we're comfortable doing to be advocates. Yes. Yes, it could be, as I said, an op-ed, a call to the congressman, a, a rally, an event for Israel, anything that you feel comfortable with and that demonstrate that support of what we believe in, which is supporting 
the liberal democracy of the state of Israel, the Jewish state of the Jewish people in the land of Israel. Now, you've made the comment of WWAD. Well, what about WWWD? What will America do? And from what you hear on the inside, is the United States going to somehow help Israel in this crisis? Yes, uh, look, I, I think it's pretty clear that we have great friends in America. The administration is 100% uh, is supportive of Israel's rights for self-defense. Secretary Blinken has spoken to the foreign minister, foreign minister Ashkenazi, uh, the national security advisor, uh, Jake Sullivan has just spoken to his equivalent in Israel. They understand that when Israel is under attack, we have to write exactly like America would do to exercise our right for self-defense. Having said that, that doesn't mean that there are no uh, uh, frictions uh, on topics that have to do vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians, and as you know, also vis-a-vis -vis Iran. But we believe that the support for Israel is bipartisan. We, support for the, we believe that the support for Israel is transcending administrations, and that we believe it comes from shared values, shared interests, and the support coming from the constituents. And therefore, we are working closely with the administration to make sure that that support uh, continues for a long time. And there are voices now, unfortunately, in Congress who are pro-Palestinian against the state of Israel. I saw some posts from a congresswoman recently. Is that something that we in America should be concerned about? I, I, uh, I've, been, uh, I've been working on the U.S.-Israel relationship for many years now. As you know, I served in uh, Washington as Israel's liaison to the U.S. Congress. And I have to tell you that uh, I, I'm looking at, uh, at the change of the demographic of, of Congress, and it is changing. I wouldn't say that it has changed dramatically. There's a strong, solid support for the U.S.-Israel relationship, which is still bipartisan. But to your point, yes, I'm looking with a certain frustration and certain disappointment when uh, 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 certain members of Congress, some of them from the Midwest, uh, especially from Palestinian backgrounds like Rashida Tlaib uh, from uh, Michigan, Congresswoman Tlaib, and uh, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar uh, from uh, Minnesota, uh, which, by the way, there is a direct correlation between the fact that some of them are very critical of Israel, but there are some of them also come with uh, very anti-Semitic uh, uh, tweets that are pretty worrisome on, on many levels. I mean, uh, Congresswoman uh, Ilhan Omar came out with a certain tweet that talked about the Benjamins, if you remember, and talked about dual loyalty. I think that um, these members of Congress sometimes might need to be a little bit more educated. And sometimes we need to accept the fact that when they come with a background of Palestinian descent, they're not going to be pro-Israeli in any way, shape, or form. But the other angle of it is that we need to work closely with our friends, both in the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, that understand the shared values and the shared interests and why it is important for America, for America's interest to support a strong Israel, uh, vibrant uh, society and country, and work with them, support them, educate them, invite them to Israel and intensify that support. I, I was reading in the news before we started that uh, there are real concerns that after the next meeting of the security cabinet, that things may escalate even further in terms of responses. Is there something in that information area that you know that you can share? Is this something that we think is- You mean escalation from, from whom? From Israel, a response, a stronger, even a stronger response from Israel. 
Look, I, I can tell you that since 2014, we have tried to seek a certain kind of equilibrium uh, with Hamas in the sense that uh, we uh, hope to be able to, to try to see if we can mitigate, you know, they're not gonna be Zionists, but mitigate a certain kind of relationship. But the truth be told is that there is no, there's no way to appease a terrorist uh, murderous organization like Hamas that in its charter, there is incitement to call for killings of Jews, of Israelis, and annihilation, full annihilation of Israel. <laughs> so in a sense, if you try to uh, offer appeasement to a murderous organization like that, you're actually just kicking the can down the road because in the long term, what they did with these years, they did not invest time in finding solution to COVID-19 or finding solution to cancer or working on their education and health system. They were working in developing and researching and developing further initiative and innovative ideas to kill more Jews, to kill more Israelis through a better system of rockets, better system of tunnels, attack tunnels. And therefore, I think that it's high time that Israel understands that uh, aspirin or Advil is not enough when you have a certain kind of a challenge like, uh, like Hamas. They need to understand, they need to be deterred that if they go after any Jew around the world or any Israeli in Israel, there will be a price tag attached to it. You mentioned briefly the Iran, uh, the Iran agreements. Uh, last week, when I had a chance to speak with Michael Oren, who I know you worked with and were close with, uh, he felt very strongly, obviously opposed to it. He referred to an article he had written with Yossi Klein-Alevi in The Atlantic, which pointed out that the Iran agreement is actually a path to nuclear Iran and not a path away from it. Uh, is this now the high item on the agenda of the foreign offices? <coughs> yes. Uh, first of all, Ambassador Oren was uh, um, he's a mentor for me, and I've learned many of the things uh, through him. Uh, uh, my efforts vis-a-vis -vis writing op-eds here in the Midwest went through his mentorship and I've published about 30 of them. I'll be more than happy to send you links to some of them on various topics so you can share with the congregation. Uh, but to your question, uh, JCPOA uh, and the, the fact that the, the Biden administration is moving a little bit closer in terms of negotiations with, uh, with Iranians is something that is definitely high on the foreign ministry's agenda. We believe that kicking the can down the road on that topic also is a big mistake. We think that the sunset closes that will allow Iran to be able to go nuclear in 10 years is also uh, a dramatic and critical and should not be allowed because what is 10 years, as we have discussed, what is 10 years in history? It's just like that. And we don't want to kick the can down the road to our uh, kids. We also believe that the fact that the Iranians are uh, uh, exercising uh, their movement towards uh, enrichment of uranium of 60% shows exactly the indication of where they're heading. This is not a civic uh, capability of nuclear uh, 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 facilities, but rather military use. And nobody, and this is a major point that needs to be made, nobody, this is not just Israel's personal or private uh, obsessional problem. This is the entire world's problem. Nobody wants... Iran to go nuclear, neither the Gulf countries, not Saudi Arabia, not Egypt, not Jordan. I think the Europeans don't want them to have nuclear capabilities. Of course, not the United States. And we rather be on the safe than sorry angle 
than uh, on the angle of saying, hey, uh, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. These guys don't deserve it. They have proved to lie already. 2015, it's already proved and we have their archive and Netanyahu, Prime Minister Netanyahu has offered uh, the archive to everybody to see that they were lying. They were lying to America. So if they were lying to America, why give them another chance? So, and that same kind of concept in terms of the lying to America, how do we get, I remember when, when the Prime Minister Netanyahu, when he showed the cabinets filled with all of these documents, how do people deny it nowadays? When you refer to that, what's their reaction? It's wishful thinking. People rather not see, you know, when reality bites, you rather find some kind of bypasses to say, hey, but... We call, I call it baptism. Hey, but they didn't mean that. Hey, but it's because the previous administration has extracted itself from the JCPOA. Hey, but whatever. At the end of the day, I'm willing to be very, uh, very um, generous when it comes to uh, any other thing but my pure existence. <laughs> and when it comes to my pure existence, and I know that... Uh, Iran is uh, vowing to, to annihilate Israel with a nuclear capability. You know, nobody can blame me for trying to be a little bit more safe than sorry, playing it safer and uh, not taking them for their word. If I can, I want to switch from the news of today to, to you a little bit more. What are you doing now that you're going back to Israel? What is your next step in your career path? How are you serving Am Yisrael? in the future. Thank you for asking that. Uh, so for many years, I've been dealing with the ge geostrategic topics, including the Palestinians and Iran and, uh, and the conflict. And uh, the foreign ministry has an agency that not a lot of people are aware of. Have, have you heard of the, of the agency called Mashav? No. No, I haven't. So Mashav, and, and don't, don't feel bad about it because I think once again, we're lacking the branding here. Mashav is an equivalent agency of what the USA does, of course, with smaller uh, capabilities, but we are helping uh, developing countries, including in Africa, Southeast Asia, Latin America. We've been doing it since 1958, the days of Ben-Gurion and Golda Meir. We have done that with 300,000 candidates and active in 80 countries. And I'm going to be the next uh, head of the bureau of that agency called Mashab. And I will send you a two minutes video so you can share with the congregates if you're interested. Wow. And so you're moving from there and then to go the other way. How did you ever get into the foreign service? How does someone become council general for the Midwest? <laughs> So that's, that's a great question. Uh, about uh, almost 50 years ago, 45 years ago, uh, my, uh, my parents represented Israel in South Africa and in Malawi, two, two countries in Africa. And I think that's where that virus hit me. Although today we don't want to hit about, want to talk about viruses, but that positive virus hit me. And I decided that I want to represent my country uh, in, in the foreign ministry as a diplomat. It took me a couple of years because I was at the private sector. I was a publisher of five local papers, but then I decided that I wanna 
different kind of a goal in life, which is not just to maximize profits, but actually to maximize the interest of my country. And I joined the foreign ministry and I'm, I'm happy I did that. It's a career of almost 25 years now. And so going to your parents who you referenced earlier, living in the center of, of, of Israel, your father was also in the foreign service? He was, uh, he was part of our security agency. So it wasn't a foreign uh, service, not kind of a diplomat of foreign service, but a different kind of a representative of the Ministry of Defense. Uh, but uh, yes, at the end of the day, they represented Israel there too. And I learned it from them, I guess. <laughs> Closure so, of a circle. It's fascinating. And so your replacement will be coming over the summer and you're going to have to tell them, you're going to tell him about Chicago. You'll tell them about the whole Midwest. What have you learned about Chicago versus when you were posted in, in Washington or in other locations? What's, what's different about the Chicago community? I'm sure it's not all good. So the first thing that you learn in Washington, yeah, the, the, the first thing that you learn in Washington, I, I couldn't hear the last sentence. Oh, I, I think uh, we're I, I said, uh, How is it different? What are you going to be telling your machlif, your, your replacement, about the uniquenesses of Chicago, about what he needs to understand about our community? Yes. Yes. So, so, you know, when I served in Washington, the first rule that you learn in Washington is that if you want a friend, get a dog, right? <laughs> one of the pre one of the presidents have said that. So it, I I think in the Midwest it's pretty clear that this is uh, there's two things that I would make sure that he understands. First of all, is that this is one of of the unique, amazing locations in the United States where the peoplehood, the people are so friendly, so sincere, and supportive of Israel that I would invest many of uh, my hours. Uh, investing in the people-to-people -people, uh, segment. And I think that's extremely unique. And the second thing is the word potential, because Israelis used to think that when they talk about America, they used to think it's just about the coasts. It's about New York, about the West Coast in LA, maybe Washington, a little bit, maybe Miami. But they, they have never heard about the heartland of America, which lies right here, that everything that works and everything that, that takes comes from here. And the word potential for business, for tourism, for the relationship with the Jewish community and the non-Jewish community lies right here. And I felt that when I was in Lansing, Michigan and Omaha, Nebraska and uh, Minneapolis and in St. Paul and across the Midwest. And I think this is something that I will elevate to him in terms of understanding the importance of the potential that we have here to work with our friends uh, as I said, from the Jewish community, but also the evangelical community, uh, the business opportunities, the academia, of course, the culture, so many great things uh, to do. And, and uh, as, uh, as I'm here, you know, summarizing my uh, five years, I think when it comes to Chicago, I'm the first Israeli consul general that also witnessed the Cubs win the World Series. So I'm taking a little bit of that uh, credit to myself <laughs> to the consulate. <laughs> Hopefully not the last one to, to watch that. I, I know people would not forgive me if I didn't ask two other questions and both of them are COVID related. People want to know when is Israel going to open up more? When will we be able to visit? 
And also, we understand, and in fact, you've been very helpful for so many people in the Midwest to be able to receive permission to go to Israel. So I also want have to say how wonderful you and your staff have been under these very trying circumstances. Uh, to imagine that one or two people are responsible for permission for an entire Midwest. Uh, Michal does an amazing job. Thank her for all of us. But how much longer are they going to have to work like this? When is it going to open up in Israel? Well, first of all, thank you for your kind words. And you're right, COVID has put us all in a situation where there's a dramatic change in the needs and not dramatic change in the resources that are appropriated for the need. And we're talking about almost 400, 500 emails a day uh, that uh, we have between a person and a person and a kvetch that is trying to assist here. And it's extremely, extremely challenging. We hope, you know, Israel's uh, is really in terms of uh, COVID, miraculously, we have forgot, we forgot about the COVID now with all the escalation that is happening, but uh, miraculously has managed to really make uh, some good decisions and being able to really cope in terms of the vaccination program, uh, being able to cope uh, smartly and to bring a certain kind of normal, normality back to Israel in terms of the economy, in terms of the education system, et cetera. We hope that we'll be able to, uh, and, and, and we have to, however, be very focused on all the variants and the mutations that are coming from abroad, from India, from South Africa, et cetera. Therefore, Israel has once a, a kind of an advantage as is one entrance through Ben-Gurion and we have to monitor it very carefully. I have a feeling that, uh, and I'm looking forward and hoping that sooner rather than later, we'll be able to, uh, extract all the limitations out of, of the traveling and have a certain kind of a system that would easily allow us to be able to come to uh, through Ben-Gurion very, very easily. And I have to tell you, this is not just geared towards friends that, uh, that want to come visit Israel, but also geared towards the Israeli diplomats. When I come back to Israel, I have to be quarantined. I have to go through all the process of serological tests and, uh, and, uh, and COVID tests. So at the end of the day, we all want to take... Uh, to take, uh, to take these, extract these limitations off, but we will be guided by the Ministry of Health, Ministry of Interior Affairs, and hopefully that'll be happening sooner rather than later. So would you expect over the course of the summer that it will open up and that the Ishurim, the permissions no longer need to be granted, or are we, you think we're looking for a longer period? I don't want to give a specific dates. I, uh, I am hoping that somewhere around the summer we'll be in a different place. But again, I don't want you to, I want to be credible here. So I don't want you to hold me uh, on that date. But, but I really, really genuinely hope that this will happen somewhere around the summer. And on top of that, I added an additional incentive to our friends in Chicago by inaugurating a nonstop flight after 20 years from O'Hare to Bungurio. So there's three things I think I told you that, that I was told will be very, very hard to achieve in the five years that I'm here. One, to have the Cubs win the World Series, check. Two, to have a nonstop flight from O'Hare to Bungurion, check. And three, hope and pray that the Messiah comes. I'm working on the third one. Two out of three, not so bad. Well, the first one may have even been harder, the Cubs, than bringing Mashiach himself. But on, on that note, I want to thank you for your time, but even more than thanking you for your time, for thanking for your leadership, 
the fact that you and Enat came to Chicago with your family, have made it your home. Enat has been showing everyone on Facebook how to cook, and she's been doing magnificent meals. We follow, we watch, and you have been a communicator of the beauty of Medinat Israel and the potential. So, Council General, I thank you very much for your time. I look forward to seeing you in person, please God, very soon. And I wish you, on behalf of a community, great success in the future, because your success means that things will be better for all of Klal Yisrael. So thank you so very much. Thank you, and next year in Jerusalem. Amen. This year, maybe. This year. Amen. Bye-bye. Thank you so much.